Greetings and welcome to another edition of Trinity Radio. I am Jonathan Pritchett and along with me is Harold Hunter. The famous. The famous Harold Hunter. <laughs> Finally, a, a Dr. Hunter with some class as a co-host. <laughs> you look much younger with hair and, and with no beard. So. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Glad to have you. And today you. Uh, we are going to be talking about divorce and remarriage in the church. So stick around. So it's here's, not heresy. It's come on. No, it's Harris' son. Wow! They gave us nothing but tradition and no argument. All they did was get on this stage, yell real loud, and set a straw man on fire. Okay, now this is I I, I was not impressed. <laughs> I, I've never heard of this gentleman before, but and there is no evidence at all, except in the imagination of Dr. Braxton and like-minded thinkers that there is such a thing as an objective morality. All right, well, that was a very passionate speech by Professor Alvarez. However, let me point out a couple of things that I have not argued tonight that Professor Alvarez seems to think that I have argued. Everything that begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. On behalf of humanity, God became man to die for the sin of the world. Then, because of that sacrifice, you can rise from the dead just like he rose from the dead. And we're back. And I am so happy to have you here. Well, I'm glad to be here. I love anything that has to do with the media because I built my ministry on television and radio, primarily radio. Yes. So I like anything that we do that's broadcast. Pastor, I have a question. Was the, uh, the very, very came... popular? Yes. Um, I was in Jacksonville, Florida. I had a mega church down there, and I had this idea. And it was to have a talk program during drive time in the afternoon. And for Jacksonville, that was 4.30 to 5.30 every day. And so presumably, I would give them Bible answers to any question. And I took any question seriously, whether it was current events, politics, something biblical, expressly biblical. I thought it was very interesting because there, at that time, there were 27 radio stations in Jacksonville, and at that time slot, when I began, that station, WROS, was number 19. Mm. Within a year, we were number two. We were never able to overcome <laughs> a big country station down there, oh, yeah. but we were number two, because people love to talk about religion and sure. politics. And, and, and no screening of the questions before you got None, them. whatever. They just came to me. Kind of like what we're going to do today. They just asked me and I answered. Oh, there you go. We, we did something similar, uh, Braxton and I, down in uh, uh, Sarasota, Florida, where mm -hmm. we had no idea what uh, questions you're going to get. But Braxton told me a story that you did that at a church one night and you intentionally gave all wrong <laughs> answers to show how little they knew the, uh, the Bible because they didn't know how to discern your... Well, I not only did that, but um, I, the pastor asked me, he said, I've really got a, really a well-trained church here. My, my <laughs> church really knows the Bible. I said, they do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you preach something wrong, they'll know it. Uh. On that particular night, I, pre I believe in eternal security. That church yeah. believed in eternal security. But I preached a sermon on falling from grace. And I asked at the end of the sermon, I said, did you learn anything? And person after person would stand up and said, you know, I really got it now. Man, I really understand. <laughs> That's the best sermon on eternal security that I've ever heard. And the whole sermon was on falling from grace. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, that's that's uh, a problem that we have in a lot of churches. Biblical but it sort of feeds into the topic that we're going to talk about today because a lot of times what we believe is because we got it from somebody that we highly respect as a Christian and we just think they couldn't be wrong. Yeah. Not always a bad thing, but dangerous in some It's respect. very dangerous. Yeah. I think it's extremely dangerous because... Sometimes very well-meaning people, just very well-meaning people, can be sincerely wrong. Sure. I sit next to one every day in the... Sh- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we won't talk about young earth, old earth, but that's, that's all right. You know, go ahead. <laughs> well, and, and, and the issue today, I, 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 there's three or four basic positions. One is that the Bible gives no exceptions for divorce, and people misunderstand the exception clauses. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people would say there's one or two exceptions, the, the one in uh, for unfaithfulness or desertion by the unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 7. And then people, uh, other people, and this would be my position, see that the two exceptions that are listed are not exhaustive. They're just they're emblematic or, 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 or what they have in common uh, is the undergirding of Genesis, uh, leaving your father and mother and cleave to your wife, and what both abandonment and, and adultery have is the undoing of that, um, uh, making that virtually impossible. So some people would say physical abuse, uh, ex- or at least extreme cases of, of abuse and emotional abuse, would be permissible, because what Paul does is he pastorally uh, takes a principle from Genesis and, and the exception of Jesus, because in 1 Corinthians 7, he goes out of way to say, this is not the tradition from Jesus, this is I say. Uh, and so you see him making a pastoral judgment based on the situation in Corinth. So that's, that's, those are basically the positions. So what is right? Tell us what's right. None of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, very frankly, let, let me just give you a little bit of a background. In the culture in which I was raised, um, the idea of marriage and divorce was extremely narrow, very narrow. Some people, as you say, accepted the exception clause, which basically is that if uh, your spouse commits fornication, then you're free to marry whomsoever you will, get a divorce, so forth. Then there were others who said there was no exception clause, but even that was very, very narrow. I never will forget, I never will forget, when I was pastoring in Jacksonville, Florida, we had a, a, a marriage psychologist and counselor in our church there, and he said, I want to invite all of the conservative pastors in this area, regardless of denomination, to come and let's have a discussion about marriage and divorce. Right. So we had some assemblies of God and some Methodists and Baptists and so forth. Who, who gets a divorce more Baptists or Methodists? I have no idea. <laughs> so we got them all in a room, and he said, I want to know what you believe the Bible teaches about marriage and divorce. They really didn't know. They thought they knew. Right. They really thought they knew, but they really didn't. Because when you'd begin to ask them and to begin to probe a little bit, you could see a question mark come on their faces. Now, I'll never forget one man, an elderly pastor who said, I have preached my entire life that unless your spouse is guilty of adultery, then you have no biblical basis 
for a divorce. None whatever. But he said that all changed when one night I was awakened by a telephone call and a doctor at a hospital called me and said, Pastor, your daughter is in the emergency room. This is the third time that I have treated her husband has beaten her brutally. Mm. And he said, now, doctor, I said, pastor, if she stays with him, he will ultimately kill her. And this pastor looked at me and said, you know what I did? I said, what'd you do? He said, well, I'll tell you what I didn't do. When she got on the phone and started crying, saying, daddy, I want to come home. I didn't tell her, honey, your husband hasn't been unfaithful to you, so you got to go on back. I didn't tell her that. I said, baby, you come on home. We'll see a lawyer, and we'll get a divorce tomorrow. He said, I don't know how that fits with what I've always preached. I don't know where I go with that. And I will venture to say that there are people who are watching us right now that as long as the marriage problem does not come to you or to a family member, you have all the right answers. Right. But all of that's going to be put into the vessel of human experience, and you're going to have to explain it from the harsh reality of a bad situation in your own life or the life of your family members. Now, the truth of God does not change, but what I'm saying is I am utterly convinced, and some of you are going to call me a liberal, but that's all right. I've been called worse. I am utterly convinced that whether you want to talk about the exception clause or or whether or not there's even an exception clause, I am convinced this whole discussion, even by the Lord Jesus, is his um, use of what I consider to be an oriental device that was very prominent in that day of hyperbolism, in which you teach a truth as an ideal of what it ought to be uh, with extremes. For example, Jesus said, if, if you don't hate father and mother, then you can't be my disciple. Now, are we going to be so presumptuous as to believe that Jesus was actually teaching you've got to hate father and mother? No, of course not. No, we're not. And so there are a lot of things that he taught as ideals, and we ought to press toward that ideal, but don't try to measure the human experience as whether they're biblical or not based on the human ideal, because if you did that, that would mean you can never have anything else to do with your own father and mother. You can never have anything to do with your family. Right. You couldn't love your wife. You couldn't love your children. And, of course, that's an ideal toward which we press. But we need to understand that. That's an unattainable ideal. My conviction is this. God intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman and for them to be together forever. And the reason I said a while ago what I did about when I said I don't think the Bible is really speaking to the uh, exception clause or not speaking to it, it's because this. Now listen, everybody, listen carefully. It's because the grace of God and the doctrine of justification trumps all of that. If you get into an argument about whether you can have a divorce or whether you're not, whether the Bible says this or says the other, you're going to overlook the grace of God and justification doctrine, which I think the doctrine of justification is the greatest doctrine in the Word of God. Amen. Because the, the doctrine of justification 
doesn't just say, as sometimes we say in a cliche, it's just as if we'd never sinned. No, it's stronger than that. It's when we are forgiven because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He forgives us so much, he begins to look at us as though it were impossible for us to have ever committed the sin to start with. I mean, that is such a strong statement. Now, that either works for everybody or it works for nobody. Come on, folks, let's be honest. It either works for everybody or it doesn't work for anybody. And I, I, I look a lot of times at David. David committed a terrible sin of adultery. The woman got pregnant. Bathsheba got pregnant. He tried to cover it up, and because her husband, in honor and loyalty to him, wouldn't cooperate, he couldn't cover it up. Then he conspired to have him killed. And when Nathan came and looked at him and said, you're the man, David knew what that meant. God, by his own law, had said, if you commit adultery, you're to be stoned to death. That was a law that God himself wrote. Right. And David thought, okay, I'm going to be stoned. But he wasn't. Why? This is a glorious example of the grace of God. Because God would rather forgive a man than judge a man. And when David repented, get this, folks, God set aside his law, own law that required judgment in order to extend grace. Now, there are Bible thumpers all over the country today. Well, God shouldn't have done that. Well, you know mm-hmm. what? God is God. God can do what he wants to do. Amen. And we, as we grow in grace, I would hope, would want to become more like God and less like ourselves. Well, if we're going to be more like God and less like ourselves... We're going to have to learn how to extend grace toward people that don't deserve grace. David, for heaven's sakes, did not deserve grace at all. Well, that's part of the But God gave it to him. And how much did he give it to him? Think about this, folks. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, which is the family tree of Jesus, you're going to find David and Bathsheba, she's called the wife of Uriah, Here is this old adulterous married couple, and they're stuck right in the middle of the family tree of Jesus. How much greater can a life be than to be in the family tree of Jesus? Both of them. The only married couple that's mentioned there. So here is, here, I'm going to give you a thumbnail, and this is going to end the program right here. We won't have to go any further. (laughs) It just won't have to go any further. This is it. We will go because I know you want to. And I have questions. And you got questions. (laughs) But I'm going to say something that's going to stagger some of you. And some of you are going to say, boy, I'm glad he's not the president there anymore. But I'm going to tell you something. And I can take all verses and the verses you're going to share, and I could share them too, and we could talk about it and all of that. I'm going to tell you exactly what I believe. I believe that if somebody is in a bad marriage and they get a divorce and they sincerely, this is not a made-up ploy to play mind games with God, but they sincerely come to God with a broken heart and they say, I have sinned against you just like David did. I've sinned against you, God. I believe that God will forgive them and justify them which means he looks at them as though it were impossible for them to ever have committed that sin. And then 
they are free to marry whomsoever they will as long as it's according to the will of God the next time and be under no penalty or no judgment. And I'm going to tell you right now, there are people listening to me, they're about to choke on their <laughs> tutti-frutti right now. Well, uh, they probably... <laughs> They probably want to choke on uh, Craig Keener too, because you had mentioned the, the 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 rhetorical device of hyperbole, and of course we know in the previous verses just before yeah. that he talks about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand, which of course also you know it's better to enter uh, the kingdom yeah. with uh, you know with one eye than to have both and go into hell or you know yeah right. So he, he is obvious is obviously hyperbole because nobody's cutting those off, but. Um, there's also the fact that he is speaking to Israel. Uh, he's speaking to the Jews in his audience because he, he talks about what they've heard in the past from Torah and what Moses permitted because of the hardness of their hearts and so forth. And you look at First um, Corinthians 7, that's a Gentile context or primarily Gentile context. And so Paul is, is addressing a situation of abandonment, which, which part, you know, different terms are translated, you know, um, either divorce or to put away, you know, that, that, that whole language in the Old Testament. Is, are those two different ways of saying the same thing? Well, I think or, you can, but I think at the same time you've got, I mean, God doesn't change. Right. I mean, he's immutable, he's changeless, and I think, I think the character and the personality of God of the Old Testament is the character and the personality of Amen. God in the New Testament. You don't have two different gods. And if you take 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you'll stop and think about it, Paul is talking about, and he mentions four conditions, marriage conditions. In that chapter, he talks about those who are married. Obviously, that's people that are married. Then he talks about a virgin. That's a person who's never married. Then he talks about widows. That's somebody that's married, but death now has broken the relationship. And then he uses another term two or three times, unmarried. Mm unmarried. Now, I'm not the first to say this. In fact, I was somewhat surprised. Maybe John MacArthur listened to one of my sermons on marriage, <laughs> divorce, and remarriage. But I noticed the other day that John MacArthur said exactly the same thing that I'm saying. That unmarried had to be divorced people because that's the only fourth relationship that you have. And what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? He said, it would be better for you to be like I am, talking to the unmarried and the virgins. But if you can't contain yourself, go ahead and marry. Right. Now, why would he have said that? Because, again, he has to be looking at, at the sense that here is a person who wants to be right with God. They have repented of their sins. They've come to God with their broken life, and God has forgiven them. And because, well, somebody said, yeah, but, but now wait, he's going to be in continual sin. May I tell you that that is, that is a bunch of rubbish. Just because somebody is married after a divorce and because they are married, you can't call that a continual sin if somebody, when they're forgiven, if you believe in justification as strongly as I do. Right. Do you believe that justification is God looking at us as though it were impossible for us to ever have committed a sin? If you believe that as strongly as I do, then you don't have any problem saying God is just with you the same way it is with David. He would far rather you be right with him, clean with him, honest with him, than he would to judge you. Yeah, so in the example of somebody who had gotten a divorce and then they got remarried and had kids, 
they could be somebody that's, uh, you know, maybe an ultra fundamentalist would accuse them of being in perpetual adultery. What the solution to that is not to divorce and break up that family, though. Well, you can't do that, right? That Bill Gothard. That wouldn't make it probably so what made do do? millions of dollars. Bill Gothard once said this. Bill Gothard was extremely popular 30, 35 years ago. Bill Gothard had never married, but he had all these tapes and everything on marriage. Yeah. Bill Gothard had never been a father, but he could tell everybody how to be parents. I mean, give me a break. But Bill Gothard taught that if you get a divorce and you and your wife have children, you get a divorce. And then you marry again, and your wife marries again, and you have children by those subsequent parents. If you really want to be right with God, you've got to leave these new spouses and remarry. Oh, that's where's that in the Bible? <laughs> well, it's not in there. In fact, in Deuteronomy, <laughs> the Bible teaches against that. It says you, you can't go do that. I mean, if you leave your spouse and you marry somebody else, you can't remarry your spouse. But see, <laughs> the problem that I think has brought all this in is that historically during the time of Christ, there was a rabbinical teaching that was quite popular that if you saw your wife, of course they had dresses went all the way to the, or robes went all the way to the ground, but if you saw your wife twirling in the street and her ankle was exposed, mm. That was a reason for a divorce. And the Talmud says there was a reason if you burnt your bread. <laughs> yeah, and you could do that. And, and of course, you know, in the Old Testament, you say that you're divorcing a woman three times and yeah. she's divorced. And what Jesus was trying to do in Matthew chapter 19, he was trying to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Getting a divorce without a justifiable reason, and this is where the exception clause comes in, Without just, it is a sin. Don't listen to these guys that say you can just go out of there and on a whim get a divorce. Right. If you get a divorce, it is a sin. Listen to me, folks. Listen carefully to what I'm saying, though. As I study the Word of God, if it is a sin, you treat it like a sin, for heaven's sakes. You go to the cross. You find out there's blood sufficient to cover that sin because there's room at the cross for you, as the old song says. You are forgiven of that sin. You are cleansed. You're washed. You're whiter than snow. And from that point, live in the power of the Holy Spirit and determine in your life, I'm not ever going to go that route again. Well, amen. But if that's true, uh, just shifting gears for a little bit, if that's true, and we believe that that's true, why is it in a lot of churches that if you're divorced, even if it's not pastoral ministry, they there's a sense they don't want you to be a deacon. There's a sense that they don't want you to teach Sunday school. There's all of these things that if you're divorced, they place you in a category where they don't really want your involvement in the... You know what I'm talking about? Yes, and I think I can explain that because I'm a little older than you are, and I think I can explain that. I think I think it's two things. I think it's a very gross misunderstanding of Paul's teachings about the qualifications for a deacon and for an elder. I think it's a very definite misunderstanding of that. and But more than that, in the culture in which I grew up in the South, you just didn't, divorce was an anomaly. It just didn't take place. I mean, 
I mean, murder took place. They'd kill each other, but they'd hang in there with each other. Hmm. Divorce. Divorce 100 or 150 years ago was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing for believers. I mean, it was a terrible thing. And so churches tried to find scripture, it's my opinion, tried to find scriptures that would sort of validate what they believed about it being so horrible. Yeah. And they overdid it. They went too far. They went to the extreme. And so as a result of that, they decided... We're not going to let divorced people do anything in the church, and especially as a deacon. He can't be a deacon. All right, now, let me give you a true-life example of something in my own life, and I won't mention names. Braxton will know who I'm talking about. I know a couple where the man got married to a girl when he was 19 and she was 17 or 18. Two or three years later, she began to run around on him, he did everything he could. He did everything he could, everything he could possibly do to keep that marriage together, and he wasn't able to keep it together. He, she left him. They got a divorce. He subsequently married a lady, and they've been married over 50 years. I know for a fact give over 35% of their income to the Lord's work. Wow. Been faithful to each other in church every time the doors are open. In everything we would expect from a Christian couple, he won't tolerate uh, any kind of foul language, won't tolerate any kind of dirty movies on television. I mean, just a very godly sort of person. But he'll never be a deacon. Right. Because he got a divorce. On the other hand, I know a couple that when I led this man to the Lord, he made a statement that he had slept with over 100 women. And was in drugs and alcohol. Part of his testimony before he became a Christian? Told me that. Oh. But he never got a divorce. Yeah. He's the pastor of a church now. <laughs> now, he slept with over 100 women. Yeah. But he never got a divorce. So he's eligible to be a pastor. Here is a man who, through no fault of his own, has slept with only two women. The woman he was married to who ran off with another man after he did everything. And he's lived a very noble, wonderful life married to the second woman. Now, you tell me. You just tell me. How in the name of sanity can anybody at all put those in any sort of equivalency at all? How, mm -hmm. can, how can you justify it? <laughs> you can't. But, folks, it comes back, and I'm going to keep beating this drum. It comes back to justification. I can look at anybody, I can look at anybody, and I can tell them there are some human penalties for sin, but don't try to make biblical reasons that, that will somehow undo or change anything when it's not applicable. Like, for example... I can give you reason. I can give you a lot of good reasons that a divorced man should never be the pastor of a church, never should be a deacon. I can give you a lot of reasons. Let me give you one. We're living in a sex-saturated society. Would you agree with that? I would. We're living in a sex-saturated society. Our kids are getting everything in the world thrown at them. They're seeing movie stars that 
get married and live together a month, and they need to divorce them, get another and live together with them a year and get a divorce. Multiple marriages, multiple divorces. You got all this being thrown at them. And somehow or another, the world thinks those of us who believe the Bible are crackpots and idiots. So I think, because of the nature of the world, that it's probably better to have a deacon or a pastor who's been married to one woman, they've had a good marriage, rather than having a deacon or a pastor who's been married and divorced, and then that deacon or pastor is going to have to do counseling with a couple out here, and she says, well, let's go talk to the pastor, and her husband says, why would I want to talk to him? He couldn't even keep his own marriage together. Mm -hmm. See, there are some reasons, but let's not try to make biblical reasons. It's two different things. You see what I mean? My next question is, uh, you can, well, given that you could push those... By the way, you're pretty good. Thank you. (laughs) Given that you can push those too far to where the qualifications, it basically just says a one-woman man, if you push that too too hard, you would Paul would have disqualified himself pretty much because he was either. Cause he well, was, I'll tell you something else. He'd, he'd disqualify God. In <laughs> Jeremiah three verse eight, he says, "I've given papers of divorcement to to Israel." Yeah. Who's his bride now? The church. So he got married, divorced, and remarried. <laughs> Is that right? Sounds like it. So. I mean, sound like it. Nothing he did. Yeah. I mean, God said it Himself. He said in Jeremiah 3, verse 8, I'm going to give Israel a, a papers of divorcement. I mean, it's black ink on white paper. It's there. And then he turned around. He never evidently never did remarry him again because now the church is the bride. Right. And if he did marry him, and we don't know about it, that not only is he an adulterous God, he's a bigamist. Yeah. Wow. So God wouldn't be qualified to be a pastor, and neither would Paul. That's interesting. Uh, Jesus uh, was never married, so he wouldn't be qualified if you push that language. Uh, do you? So you would agree with the interpretation then that what that basically means is if you were the type to be married, you would be a one married woman, but that's not a rigid, com- you don't have to be married. Let's to be go back to what I said in the very beginning. That's yeah. the ideal. We ought to be wearing toward the ideal. And what I am saying today is never to be taken as an excuse for getting a divorce if you're married. Right. You may be married, and I think, well, I know Peter would say this because he did say it. Women, by your behavior, by your conversation, you can win your husband to the Lord by being a godly woman. Right. We ought to do everything, absolutely everything we can possibly do to win people to Christ. You can be different. Your life can be different. You can be saved. You can be born again. You can be a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Amen. And Paul didn't say everything except one or two things. He said <laughs> all things. And I'm just, I've just looked at the Bible, and I just know that's so. Well, for some people, though, you know, God keeps no records of wrongs, but Christians can keep records forever, and sometimes they do, you know. And by um, the way, just so I can validate this with somebody else, uh, I was somewhat surprised to find out that John MacArthur agreed with me, and evidently, um, somewhere along the line, Adrian Rogers got a hold of a couple of my tapes. Oh, because I used to do marriage seminars. Uh, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, <laughs> but I know for a fact that in a conference, 
he was asked this question in a question and answer. Do you believe that a divorced man can ever be a pastor? Mm. And his answer was, I think it ought to be on a case-by-case, but I don't think being divorced ought to disqualify him automatically. Right. Because, again, he, like me, believes the grace of God is greater than that. Sure. But for some people, they would see the disqualification that even if you had never had a divorce, but... No, I can tell you what. But you were married to a woman who had had a divorce. Nah, that's carrying it a little bit. But I'll tell you what. But that happens too. Yeah, but I'll tell you you the most common rebuttal to my position. Well, now, you know, Brother Harold, you know, it's like a man gets drunk. He's out here in a car wreck and gets drunk and has a wreck and loses his arm. Just because he gets saved and he's justified, doesn't get his arm back. Mm. That's apples and oranges. Yeah, that's apples and oranges. That doesn't <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with what God is wanting to do in your life once you come to Christ. Yeah, and what He wants you to be in your life, and to move from there. And and so it looks to me like if you look at David, David was a man after God's own heart. Now I can think of a lot of people, like for example Joseph in the Old Testament. If I was going to name a man after God's own heart, I would have named Joseph. Wouldn't you? But more than David. Or even Hezekiah. Yeah. I mean, either one of them. I mean, look what David did. Yeah. Adultery. Tried to cover it up. Killed her husband. He certainly doesn't seem like a man after God's own heart to me. But it doesn't matter. God's right and I'm wrong. Because Mm -hmm. God said he was a man after his own heart. And if God will so forgive David, now, David had to pay. Don't think he didn't have to pay for his sin. We all have to pay for our sins. And if you have a divorce and a remarriage, or if you just have a divorce, everybody that's ever had one knows the pain they go through, the emotional pain they go through, sometimes financial pain, but for sure the, the emotional pain they go through. It, it, you can't sin without there being some kind of a right. payday on it. And he paid. Check out Second Samuel chapter 12, and you'll find that God struck the child that was born to him in Bathsheba. So there was a payday on it. And remember, he said um, to Nathan, this man will pay fourfold. Whoever did it didn't know he was talking about himself. And as you know, that's the law of the harvest. Whatever you plant, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get it later than you got it, and you're going to get more than you got. So what did he plant? He planted sex and blood. All right, Tamar, his daughter, is raped by a son. That's number one. The son is killed by another son. That's number two. And you just go down. The baby died. Absalom rebelled against him, and Joab killed him. Yeah, it gets messy. I mean, that's the law of the harvest. And he paid for it. And I don't yeah. think David got away, but he didn't pay the ultimate price, which was being stoned. Right. And then God blessed this marriage. Because they're in the first chapter of Matthew as um, part of the family tree of Jesus. And I'm saying to anybody, listen to me, regardless of what your marital state is, if the two of you will come to God and you'll commit it to God and you'll ask for God's faith and mean it with all your heart. I mean, this is not playing games in order to get blessings like some of the 
health and wealth people talk about. You, you really seriously are wanting to be right with God. I am telling you now, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to change everything in your life, and you're going to have a wonderful life in front of you. No, amen. The, the, the problem I see in churches is, well, like you had mentioned earlier about, well, your part in it, if nothing else, was you didn't exercise good judgment in who you married. Um, so I, I do think, and maybe you can talk about this because you were a megachurch pastor, in larger churches or even smaller churches, is has premarital counseling fallen out of fashion, and is it more oh, difficult yeah. in a larger church than a smaller church? No, in fact, I think it's probably a little bit easier in the megachurch than it is a smaller really? church. Really? Oh, yeah, because mm. I had I had a couple of people on my staff. I had a full-time counselor on my staff, and he pretty well did all of that. I didn't have to do very much of it at all. And a lot of times in a smaller church, especially if the man is a bivocational pastor, he just flat out doesn't have time for it. But what I've discovered, the biggest difficulty that I had is sometimes we would have a stewardship emphasis. And I would have a couple give a testimony about how God had blessed them because they were faithful in their giving to the Lord. And I had a, I had a couple, he had been married and divorced, she had been married and divorced. They had come together and had a wonderful marriage. Both of them were great Bible teachers, and both of them really loved God with all their heart. But I never would let them get up and give a marriage, give a testimony about financial stewardship. The reason is this. Some girl sitting back there with a bum husband who won't even go to church, and she's sitting there, and she looks up, and she's says, mm-hmm. I see her. She dumped her old husband. Look what mm. she got. All I, I, that's what I need to do. Right. I get rid of my old man. I'll get somebody that's really, really nice. That's a distortion of what I'm trying to say. That is a total distortion. I think that in a marriage, regardless of how rough it is, divorce ought to be absolutely the last resort. Amen. I mean, absolutely the last resort. And, um, but it's not something that's unforgivable. That's the point I'm trying to make. And too many people look at it as being unforgivable, and I don't. Yeah, see, it would, from, from those kind of situations, bad spouses, as long as you're still married, is still a mission field. It's a mission field. For the church to, to go reach the and, unbelieving And uh, Stephen Overt, I think, once said this, and I think it's true. A bad marriage is always preferable to a good divorce. Hmm. Because you've always got that chance that God can miraculously heal. You know, um, some of you have been hearing about the plight that Paige Patterson's been going through, and I'm not going to go into all of that. But one of them was with a young lady that came to him and wanted counseling because her husband was somewhat abusive, and he told her she needed to be separated. Well, do I need to get a divorce? Well, not right now. That ought to be down the line, the last thing you do, get a separation. Don't be in a position where he can hurt you. So she did what he said and prayed for her husband. Well, guess what? He came to Christ, gave his heart to the Lord, and they've been happily married for over 50 years because she made divorce the absolute last option. See, I look at it this way. Adultery or abandonment, and you can call that abuse if you want to, does to a marriage what abortion does to a life. Mm. Abortion ends a life. And while you could get a divorce and you could 
repent of it and have a radiant life after that, that ought to be the last possible thing because as a rule, when the divorce happens, there is no reconciliation. You have, you have some isolated cases where that happens. But it may be that God has brought you into this time of trouble and deep water and heartache to bring you out on the other side, whether it will be joy. Remember what um, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, too. He said that because of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Yeah. A lot of people have never seen that. Can you imagine, because he understood what a crucifixion was, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was horrified at the prospect of Calvary, but the thing got him through it is he knew the joy that was on the other side. So if people can somehow see, I'm going through this bad time with my spouse, it's a horrible time. But I think there's joy at the end of the day. I'm not going to talk about a separation or a divorce until I've reached for that joy. Yeah, part of the part of the thing is, uh, for me, like you said, we're a resurrection believing people, and God can resurrect yeah. bad marriages that are dead, essentially dead, because of, uh, you know, so divorce would be the very absolute last uh, option for anybody. But so before we wrap up, just give me one or two. What are one or two practical things that we can do to encourage those in the church who may feel marginalized because they've been a divorce, been divorced in the past. What get, get some let's close on some. I think the first thing you need to understand, you need to come yeah. to grips that God has a will for your life. And this is something you need to really grasp. I don't know how many people I have counseled in my life um, with marriages that were in trouble. I, I don't have any idea more than I can imagine. And especially for those who've been married and divorced, I, I, how many times I've heard them say, well, I, I've blown it. God yeah. had a will for my life, but um, I've blown it. I, I can never be what God wants me to be. I, I can't. And then if somebody comes along and kind of puts them down because of their marriage relationship, that even further accentuates the feeling they've already had. This is my philosophy. God has a will for your life, but if through sin and being deceived by the devil, your life is damaged and it's hurt. If you come to Christ, there is an ultimate will, and I don't want to get into Calvinism or non-Calvinism, but there is an ultimate will of God for you right now, beginning at this point. Whatever your sin was, however bad it was, however awful it was, it can become brand new. I think, I think a lot of General Buck Naked of Liberia. <laughs> General Buck Naked, have you ever heard of him? No. <laughs> General Buck Naked, 25, 30 years ago, was the leader of a band of guerrillas that caused havoc all over Liberia. And he was called General Buck Naked because all he would do, the only clothing he would wear was a gun belt across his chest and a pair of army boots. He wore nothing else. He was totally naked. And his men were dressed that way. Wow. That followed him. And, and they felt like they were impenetrable to bullets, that nobody could kill them. And before they would go into a battle, they'd take a child, 
and they'd very carefully open that child's chest, keeping the child alive, and then cut out his heart, and each mm. man would take a bite of it. And they thought by doing that, they, they were impenetrable. They couldn't be killed. One day in a battle. Now, General Bucknaked had never heard about Jesus. One day in a battle, he was leading his men, and he had a machete and an automatic weapon killing people. He's estimated that he killed, personally, 20,000 people. Hmm. And he said, I suddenly saw Jesus in front of me. I saw Jesus, and I knew it was Jesus. I never heard of him, but I knew it was him. And he said, follow me. And I was so frightened, I went running backwards out of the battle, scared to death. The presence of Jesus scared me. And nearby there was a missionary hut. And people were screaming, General Buck Naked is coming. And the mother and the father and two or three kids went running inside. But a nine-year-old girl was left standing outside, and he came running up to her and said, Can you tell me about Jesus? And she told him about Jesus, and he knelt down and gave his heart to God. General Buck Naked now is the greatest soul winner in the history of Liberia. He's led more people to the Lord than he murdered. Wow. He's the greatest soul winner in Liberia. One of the greatest soul winners in the world. Okay, now think about this man. Now think about this man. Let's, let's go back. What if he had said, I've missed the will of God. I've been a murderer. I've killed people. I've been horrible. God would have not gotten any glory out of that. Right. Now let's take this over to a couple. Here's a man. He's been married and divorced. He suddenly sees his life is ruined. In a sense, gets a new vision of Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He says, my life's been a mess. I want it to be different. I want to be different. If God can do that with General Buck Naked, don't you think he can do that for <laughs> somebody in Nashville, Tennessee, or Evansville, Indiana, or Raleigh, North Carolina? That's right. Sure he can. There is no limitation to the grace. Of, there is no limitation to the grace of God. Your church or denomination may put a great may put a limitation on it. But there is no limitation to the man or to the woman who comes humbly to the cross, lays their ragged, dirty body down, and says, make me new, and he'll do it. Amen. So, you have your own YouTube channel. I do. All right, tell us about your YouTube channel. All right, I'm, I've got a series on Revelation. Each chapter of Revelation, there's 22 chapters in Revelation, and there's, I do a one hour on each chapter. Um, I've written a commentary on Revelation. It's in its third or fourth printing. I probably need to get it printed again. I love prophecy. Prophecy is my bailiwick more than anything else. And just so you'll know, I have the correct doctrine. There you go. <laughs> I have the Bible-inspired doctrine. I am pre-tribulation, pre-millennial. All us godly folks are like that. <laughs> and I'm young earth. All us godly folks are like that. <laughs> so I'd like for you to listen to it. And then I do sermons in miniature, which are usually two or three minutes long. And I'd love to have you listen to that. Um, I'm going to go back and start up my Harold Hunter show, which is just one hour of talking with you and having a good time. 
and that's that. All right, and, and in addition to the Revelation commentary, you have a Daniel commentary, um, uh, Simple Strategies of Spiritual Warfare. Yeah, that uh, Simple Strategies for Spiritual Warfare, I wrote for people who joined our church and was saved when I was at North Jacksonville in Jacksonville, Florida. It had chapters in it like how to have assurance of salvation, uh, how to witness, and so forth. So I have that and one on the Passover. So All right, so. we'll be sure and put the links in our uh, Do that. Uh, our notes so that you can find Do that. Uh, his YouTube channel and you can find his books on Amazon.com. Great program. Yes. I'm a subscriber. You need to be a subscriber too. So thank you for coming on the show, and thank you all for watching. God bless. If you would like more content, click here, and keep watching Bible Studies, click up here. And finally, we want you to subscribe. We need more subscribers, so click here.